How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to Cinema Sasha Podcast, episode 249. 249? I thought this was episode 3,249,681. Is it not? It is not. No. Oh, okay. We may be two decades old, Jake, it's, but we're not that old. I guess not. It's just what Morgan Freeman says in Bruce Almighty oh. when he's counting the numbers on a. Uh, uh, Bruce's back. He's got his hands behind his back. Mm-hmm. Jim Carrey says, "God, guess the numbers, you know, that I'm holding behind my back." And he says, three, two, four, nine, and then some other numbers." I actually didn't mind that. I you didn't don't think mind that? that? Was, I didn't think that was as much of a stretch as you prefaced. I thought it was going to be a stretch, <laughs> but I'll, I'll give it to you. <laughs> How are I, you, Jack? I'm good. I am. I got my coffee. Yes. So I can't say I'm tired because I'm. I'm currently medicating that <laughs> as we speak um now it's been a crazy week that these mm. le- weeks have been quite long yeah but, but in a good and way. the weekend's very short that is true it was a very busy weekend it's just a zip zip zap zoop yeah but uh yeah. and then fitting a three and a half hour movie in there zeke yeah i'm i'm look to be honest not to get too much into that film of the week but it was really mm. nice to go see a film at five being how long it was. Yeah, I think we made the right... It was a bit of an emergency. We had to... I was literally booking the tickets on the way to the cinema because uh, buying them in person, I don't think it was going to be possible. They were getting slowly swooped up, Zeke. Yes. It's swooping season. It is indeed. For the Osage people. Mm. Speaking of the Osage people... Oh. Zeke, are there any fun, interesting trivia facts about the Osage people? All the film... Killers of the Flower Moon. That was fantastic. Yeah. Well, Mark believe it or not, you know, I will have a fact based around the Osage people. Okay. And, and, and Very good. the tragedy of the Osage murders in which this film centers around. This actually wasn't the first motion picture to discuss mm. the Osage murders. In fact, we can go as far back as it goes, even before Sam was in cinema. The tragedies of the Osage Hills in 1926 by James Ooh. Young Deer. Um, and then later films such as the FBI story, obviously uh, another related aspect uh, to this film, the birth of the FBI. Yes. Um, as a result of the uh, the case in Osage County. I think um, that's the literal subtitle of the book, The Birth of the FBI. Oh, the, the book that this is based on, of course. So, that's yeah, it's a good phrase to use. So, in reality, you know, we, last week we did Goodfellas, you know. Mm. Um, the Another crime story, but from the, the perspective of the mafia. Mm. Um, this film doesn't go the way of showing us the story of how the FBI is born. In fact, it's it's little it's not introduced until the third act of the film but mm, we'll it's we'll very talk about late it. in the film we um, start meeting those characters so we'll talk about that um obviously way later on Jake mm. I don't have as smooth a segue as what you just did but do you have any fun <laughs> film facts from the film of the week killers of the flowers moon you're going to learn from the masters Eve. that's how, that's how it is but um yeah. I do I do and this one is not to do necessarily with the osage people which is to do with uh, some of the actors portraying mm. the characters in the film. Now, I incorrectly assumed, and I think a lot of people assume this too, that this is the first true collaboration, finally, between Mr. Martin Scorsese and his two muses, Leonardo DiCaprio and Robert De Niro. Obviously, they've both starred in many, many, many of his films throughout the years, but never together. Yes. 
So th that was really exciting watching this film and just the amount of scenes they have together where it's a shot reverse shots of like their performances and their dialogue sequences. But Zeke, I was wrong. Mm -hmm. It's actually not the first time those three individuals have collaborated together. There was a 2015 short film called The Audition where, in fact, it is Leonardo DiCaprio and Robert De Niro playing themselves auditioning for the same role in Martin Scorsese's next film. And I watched a bit of it on YouTube. It's very humorous. I thought it was quite funny. And apparently, I think Brad Pitt's in there too. Is the punchline like Brad Pitt gets it? It must so. be. Yeah. <laughs> it must be the... Which is... It's a shame they kind of... Because it's the opening credits have Brad Pitt's name in there. So it's like they almost spoiled the punchline before the movie even begins. But um, yeah, I was really surprised to hear that. And I also went on to uh, find out that the two actors worked together in 1993's This Boy's Life as well as, I think, a 1996 Marvin's Room, which I actually have on DVD. I didn't even realise that mm. I owned it. But the first feature collaboration... Correct. ...between the three. Yes, so that was very, very exciting and to watch from that perspective. Realistically, the first serious collaboration where we actually get to see you. Yeah, them playing dramatic roles yeah. and, and having not just one scene, but a collection of scenes together. And um, and I love that Scorsese finally gets them together in a room and makes one spank the other. I think that was really telling. Yes. <laughs> but more on that later, folks. <laughs> a little tease for Killers of the Flower Moon. Well, Spankers Jay of the Flower Moon. Okay. <laughs> you, you just had to. You had to go there. I have to get the paddle. Um, have you <laughs> caught anything in the last week? Uh, I caught a few things, actually. Mm. I'll start with one I know you've seen as well, which is the first episode of Rick and Morty Season 7. Ooh. As a matter of fact, I think the second episode is out right now, so I guess we could watch that. Tonight, after we wrap this up. Um, now, I, we talked about it a little off the air, but uh, I, we can probably briefly talk about it now. Yeah. What, what was your thinking with Season 7, and especially considering that Justin Rowland's no longer a part of it? So we have different voices for some of these characters. To be honest, I, I, I it really is quite tricky, isn't it? Because mm. you sort of sit there, and you don't want to immediately be like, oh, well, Justin Rowland's off the show. The, the show's just kabooshed. Right. You want to give it a chance. And you do. And you do. And it's quite funny because I can compare it to the other co-creator of the show, Dan Harmon, mm. and his removal and firing from Community um, after the first three seasons. He was gone for a season, season four, um, and then proceeded to finish off the show with five and six. And, and a big part of that, uh, after stewing over that first episode, is kind of the same sort of effect. And, and I will say that... I think Rick and Morty has been on a, a steady, subtle... Well, I would say a steady to subtle decline. Mm. Probably since as early as season two. I, I don't think... Uh, I'd say seasons one and two are like peak Rick and Morty. I think season three. The, I personally think the Pickle Rick stuff was not very funny at all. Okay. so I'm, I put my hand up and say like, I, that's actually one of my least favourite so episodes probably, of the whole series. So probably season three onwards, I think there's been a, a steady decline in mm. the show's potency it's um intellect it was kind of funny because there were things um there was a lot going on but and i think maybe Royland has aspects to it but i also think what's interesting is i think the show especially why i feel like one of the things that contributed to the steady decline isn't necessarily his removal from the show but honestly potentially the creative direction of both heads earlier on the fact that mm. they had this multi-season deal um, they almost had this counter culture movement as they were starting to create 
episodes that had a little bit more emotional resonance, mm. um, similar to what we thought. Maybe the direction was going to be more Bojack Horseman-esque at times. Like the like a serialized arc. Yeah. That, that aspect of it, right. And they just went completely the opposite way. Mm. And that's fine. I mean... We, I, we... I think they did even worse than that. I think they tried to play the middleman and sort of do both and kind of fail at both. Yeah. Where they have the sort of the sitcom, you know, uh, adventure of the week aspect, and they're they're very self-referential about that, and like the idea of Morty having like stamps when he's allowed to do his own adventure, for example. But then wedging in these serialized moments of okay, we're going to acknowledge like the big universe-altering storylines that happened a couple of seasons ago, but we're going to constantly make jokes about like us not wanting to do it and the audience forcing us to do it twisting your arm but they're not committing to any of those decisions yeah. and like i think the a... fact they kind of messed up both angles is what you i love the word you use potency yeah the show has no more potency its effect on the zeitgeist and culture is has fizzled away very very quickly yeah even about these last few years i mean it, quickly i mean what are we we're up to season seven now i mean the show's been around for what six seven years mm. i mean that's that's a long time in the in the, the, the mindset true. of people, but I think it, like you said, it's lost its real potency, its cultural impact. Um, like you said, mm-hmm. as early as, as season three, and and we're kind of just biding time. Like it's a nice twenty minute feel that's filled with nothing more than a <laughs> every like yeah five to ten minutes, and that's it's kind of sad. I mean, it, what's at this point, right? You can honestly say, you know, you watch that ep- that episode, you go, well, I'm pretty sure this show's done after season, what, eight, nine, right? Mm. Are we just watching because we're well over the hump and we're just in it's that... the obligation. The obligation to, to finish yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Are we Big Bang Theorying ourselves <laughs> into um, finishing this show because we know, well, there's only eight or nine episodes in this season then I'm, like, on the home stretch with yeah. this show. I'm not really enjoying it, but it's only 20 minutes of my time. And Yeah, which which is, like, I understand that because, like, the, putting it back to the Big Bang Theory where I just sort of had to finish it for the sake of finishing it, there was a finish line there in the sense that, okay, well, the show is long past its air date. Mm. And so it's kind of okay that I'm, like, oh, I just got to binge it and finish it. But for a show that's, like, dropping every week that is sort of relying on its audience mm. and, and the, the active story it's telling, that's that's a horrible attitude to have. And I, I think they completely screwed the pooch that we both feel this weird sense of obligation to finish a show that's not finished yet. Yeah, We're so past the point of caring about or rather being excited about new episodes. Yeah, and I'll give props. I mean, I feel like in, in season six, at least the first episode of season six, gives you enough to spur you on to that season. That episode that just dropped for the start of season seven did nothing. Mm. It it offered nothing. It it well, had the, the, the Hugh Jackman stuff I thought was very lame. And well and even the concept of what's what's Rick's arc in it? Mm. Oh, he doesn't like confrontation. Okay, well we know that from Pickle Rip episodes. Right. So we're we're just rehashing the same stuff, really. These characters have really no more room to go. Yeah. Um, because you actually, like I said, boxed yourself in. You chose, a, you got caught in the middle. You didn't want to give us emotional development. And um, from memory, didn't season six literally end with Rick turning to the camera and be like, 
all right, well, this is what you wanted. Next season is going to be about me trying to find my, my arch nemesis and it's going to be serialized and yada, yada. And then now in season seven, it's like, oh, they've dropped it again. Mm. Like, it just doesn't care enough about its own story. Yeah, it's... I, and to be honest, I don't think bringing Royland back will fix it. I think... No, the, the, that's interesting because everything we've said doesn't really have anything to do with the new voices. It's just the show that's been in deep decline for a while now. Yeah, I literally... I didn't notice. In terms of... Mm. Uh, I didn't care because yeah. it was like... There were other things in the episode I was right. like, oh, this is just nothing. Gotcha. Like, I'm watching nothing here. There's no intellect for me. Um, there's no wit. And I, it just, it's kind of sad because, you know, I, I look to the land of the animated, like, adult comedy or even just mm. the animated comedies out there. And we've, it's just a kind of a barren wasteland. There's nothing that's interesting. Netflix is inundated with them. You know, they've had season of hoops and five mm. seasons of big mouth and and uh disenchantment and so oh, yeah. many no, of, i think that's ended now as well and it's like so many i just didn't care you yeah. know we we're so far to the point where they've had to bring raise the corpse of futurama one more time and and yeah and it's it's fun so because i don't have disney plus i haven't been watching them week in week out it's pretty yeah. much just whenever i go to damien's house and i can watch some of the episodes there and I, I, I raved about the first episode coming back. Um, but for Futurama, I think it's kind of that same hit or miss each week. As, ah, some, some episodes are funnier and smarter than others. Yeah. And, but, but they've gone... The thing with Futurama at the moment is they've gone, like... They have 10 years worth of stuff to make fun of. Yeah. And they've hit all the very obvious ones. Like, if I look at this season's episode list, and I think they did 10 episodes, it's like, oh, there's the Amazon Prime episode. Um, oh, there's the vaccine episode. There's the crypto episode. So they're doing all the very obvious things right at the gate. Yeah. Um, but like you said, it's like they're kind of they've brought it back from the dead, and even the vo- this the voice. I mean, I will give them credit. The voices still sound amazing on Futurama. Like they're not like clearly aged or changed or anything like that. But there's just this feeling. I guess it's like with The Simpsons when you watch it nowadays, of like you're right. They feel zombified because they feel like they're so past yeah. the age where they were culturally relevant yeah so it's like and it's funny because i'll talk to the kids in class because they'll bring up things like they'll occasionally watch family guy and you'll mm. sort of sit there and you'll be like God, what is even family guy nowadays what, what, i was i was gonna what season i almost want to be like one you shouldn't be watching it you're, you're, <laughs> you're, you're 12 or 13 hey maybe two, maybe, but it's, like, maybe what it's season, now Who knows? what season are you watching you yeah. can't be watching this new stuff surely not like Let's find out. But Family Guy. I'm sorry, I've seen excerpts from those later seasons. It's it's a shell of what it really was. They're currently airing season 22 of Family Guy. That's insane. You know, even like even and the funny thing is, then you've got a show like South Park, which was so quick to something would happen and they'd have an episode out. Even they've gone, we're done. We can't. We're 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 just. This is we've we've done our COVID episodes. That's kind of it. Like yeah. we can't keep doing this reactionary comedy. I am so so thankful BoJack ended when it did. Yeah, and even though I think we both agree that last season a lot of the the storylines felt a little rushed, and I would have liked maybe a little bit more time to. But that had nothing to do with the social commentary, and and they were so they literally ended like a month before we all went into lockdown for COVID. Yeah, and I'm 
what as smart and as clever as the writing and and the political social satire or bojack is i'm worried about what that looks like post covid and i'm so glad we never kind of got to see that and yeah I don't, I don't know i just i mean there's something so exhausting about politically charged animated series these days i think at the end of the day look shows will pass their their peaks like every show has a peak but it's the ability for a show on its even on its way out mm. the fact that it still creates investment and it still uh makes you want more episodes even though you know that that's it's like a junk food in that sense you know you right. want more you know when to stop but you know it would actually probably be detrimental if you had more yeah. you know i and all my favorite shows you know i still think look whatever you say about the end of how i met your mother i think that last season was perfectly fine i, th- I think it was a perfect way to come into landing it absolutely wasn't the peak of the show mm. um wouldn't even rank close to that but it wasn't a bad season all in all it yeah. had a lot of things that tied up nicely um or community i mean the sixth season has so much stuff considering half your cast was gone like how did how do you land that and you know there are shows like i i just don't think things like what rick and morty is and even in the later seasons of the office i think the office Mm -hmm. is a shell of what it is by the end of it it it's a, a show that was kept around just to kind of spur the money machine, cash out as much as you can, because the true essence of the show had been lost by the time you get to the end of The Office, I think. I think, with The Office, I think it... it when you look at the trajectory of the show, where it's like, okay, Steve Carell leaves close to the end of season seven, yeah, and then you've got two seasons left. So I kind of look at them, like, okay, well, season eight was them like, let's see what it will be like without him. And then they did one season, and they're like, okay, it's, I don't think it's going to work. Let's do season nine, wrap it up, and then we're done. So, like, th- there's enough... I can see that trajectory. Yeah. I think the money machine would have been a factor if it went past ten seasons. Mm-hmm. And we got to the point where more than half the show was without... St- I think that's when it really would have been, like, oh, gosh. And I even like I, I don't know about Family Guy, for example. Like, yeah. how on earth is that at 20 seasons? That peak was... Because Seth MacFarlane needs to make money somewhere, buddy. <laughs> they all need their paychecks. And so, to be yeah. honest, because their show is so uh, contemporary, it's a show that can just be like, oh, there's this funny thing that's happened recently. Uh, or we'll call back to... I, I What I find is the cutaway joke. It's like, what else have they got to cut away to? Like, right. they've, they've surely done everything at this point. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's just kind of crazy. I guess a show going on that long, you're right, you kind of run out of the original stories. You're going to have to do, the, you know, what, what's new, what's hot right now. You have to comment on that, and then that's where the jokes come from. I saw a video, I can't remember what it's called, but it's basically like The Simpsons is great again, and I think there's meant to be a question mark in there. And and, But it's talking about the last two seasons of The Simpsons and this perception that's slowly grown, and I've heard it, that the show's gotten good again. And it's a really interesting video. I recommend people check it out. It does go into a lot of the plots for recent Simpsons episodes, and it kind of does suggest that the writers, we've gone through that cycle where you have the original writers of the show, around season 7, 8, 9, you start to lose a lot of them. And then by season 20, well, maybe 25, let's say 25, when I think the show really declines, you have the writers that are just flanderizing the entire cast of characters. And now season 30, 35, we're cycling again to a bunch of new writers where the Simpsons mean something completely different to them. 
And it's almost like this perception we had with Star Wars and say what you want, whether it came true or not. But this idea that the sequel trilogy, oh, but it's going to be written by the real fans. You know, they're, they're far enough away removed from the 70s mm. and the OG that what they what they do is going to be interesting. And it is interesting, and there's some good stuff in there. I still think there's a lot of, you know, laughless episodes. But I, I think for a show like The Simpsons to run as long as it does, you're going to have that that cycle where you good, bad, good, bad, good, mm. bad. And like you said, every show has their peak, but is it possible for shows to have multiple peaks? Can a peak in season four decline? Absolutely. And then go back at season eight? It has enough time. Yeah. But what's like, honestly, where do, where do your characters go from here? Like yeah. in the cons, uh, in the family of the Smiths, mm. where does any of them go? What is actually the solution here? Like, if the final yeah. thing is, oh, Rick kills the guy who killed his wife. Like, the rickest Rick kills this other Rick. <laughs> and what? See, this was all cool five years ago. The rickest Rick and this and that. and it's It inter- was all cool five years ago. It's not, it's, who cares anymore? Yeah, what, exactly. It's like, <laughs> you know, and it's interesting because it's this feel, it was this show that took all these science fiction concepts and basically went, they're stupid. Like, and you thought, mm. oh, they're being smart because they're actually poking holes in it. Whereas now you're just like, okay, there's an episode where Hugh Jackman pops up and parties really hard. Mm. And they, they have basically a hangover-esque episode where they don't even do the hangover. Like, where's Mr. Poopy Butthole? <laughs> I, I hate the name so much. Um, That's the Justin Rowland humor, though, right there. And, like, a lot of that lingers past the point when he's now no longer involved with the show, but... Yeah, and it's just like... I guess, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. It, I don't abso- have much more to say about Rick and Morty. It's, just, it's kind of... I just want the next thing. I want... I want to be wowed again from, like, an animated show, and I, I think we were so blessed there was a period there, and I didn't like Big Mouth, but people really liked Big Mouth, and mm. there was a little renaissance there, and we we're kind of just disenfranchised right now. There's yeah. nothing in that space... I guess Invincible Season 2 is coming out. That's something That's true. worth looking That's forward the to. Yeah. There is stuff out there, and I, I'm just I'm very out of touch with the latest animations at the moment. So that, mm. that's part of that's well, where I stand. Um, so I'll give a shout-out to Knives Out. I rewatched it with Kirsty. She's never seen it before. Just brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. The script gets better every every time I watch it. Yeah. And I'm surprised I was remembering all the names, because every time Kirsty would get kind of lost somewhere... I was like, oh, it's because Jody said this, and then Rance, and I was like, how am I remembering all these character names? Like, it's, it's a testament to that. That's, yeah, that's true. You that's got how the I know them. As well. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Knives Out. Um, so there were two other films I caught mm-hmm. that I haven't seen before. I finally watched Pearl, which is the uh, T. West's uh, prequel to X. Okay. And um, I, I talked about X in our Coda episode. So I think it was like one six. Mm, that's the three, people making six. the adult film that turns into a horror film. Is that that one? Um. Yeah. Well. Yes. X is about. I think it's sort of a a shout out to the seventies sort of slasher subgenre. It's yeah, very it's... Texas Chainsaw inspired, and they they go into this farm to create pornos, and the creepy couple that live in the farm they find out, and things turn really violent. Uh, and Pearl is actually about one of the older people in the apartment. It's sort of the prequel story. Of Pearl. Now she's also played by Mia Goff, who played several characters in X as well. So she's sort of tying this incomplete 
trilogy together. And I, this is, this is me. When I watched X, I was like, I'm enjoying it. It's nice and violent. It's a beautiful ode to the slasher genre. There's interesting things happening. Mm. Um, but I didn't take much more away from it. It was very much like thematically sort of empty for me. And what I love about Pearl, it takes such a different approach where first off the style, in, instead of a 70s slasher, it's much more like a, a 30s or 40s um, like Technicolor musical. Mm-hmm. And it follows Pearl in the late 1910s. It was sort of in the tail end of World War One. Uh, she's part of this German family that's migrated to America. So uh, between that, they're sort of outcast because obviously they're German. They're they're poor. The father of the household is is sick. So obviously the the flu's going around at this point. The Spanish flu. So there's a lot sort of working against her, despite the fact that she wants to be a star, mm-hmm. as the memes go. <laughs> she wants to be a star, Zeke. So there's that sort of universal or almost modern concept of her wanting to be a star in it. This isn't like, what's that TikTok film that um, uh, the Copa, Copa, Mia Coppola, is that? Mainstream, that was the film. Oh, yes. It's it's kind of like the 1910s horror version of Mainstream. Um, thank God. <laughs> there's no phones this time, Zeke. Um, but yeah, it's more like a character exploration of Pearl with this sort of World War One backdrop, and I, I think that the main difference that makes this unique is you, you could take a story in a setting like that and make like a drama out of it, mm-hmm. and you got T West sort of adding his A twenty four esque horror aesthetic to it, where oh we're gonna we're gonna jump away from the expected plot beats to have a, a masturbation scarecrow scene or like really gruesome violent moments in there, so we're just it, it makes it really interesting from that standpoint. Um, th- there's one tie that I, I was sort of disappointed they didn't take further because like like you were saying with X, there's the porn aspect to it. And the third film they're doing, which I think they've shot or are, I guess, on hiatus, they can't shoot during the strike, is Maxine. That's the third film they're doing, which is about the porn industry in the 80s and Mia Goff is playing, I think, the same character from X, but it's now taking place a few years later. So... Really, it should be this idea of porn that sort of ties the trilogy together. And there's a scene here where Pearl's sort of in the projection booth. She meets this guy, the projectionist, and this is sort of like her way of like her way in to the stardom and and like be, you know being in the pictures to the so adult to film industry. Yeah, and he shows her an adult film, and I'm like, oh, I guess this is the birth of the adult film in the 1910s. Um, and he's sort of talking about like this is going to be the next big thing. Maybe this is something you can get into. And that's kind of the end of that storyline. They don't really take that idea any further, which I thought was a little disappointing because they could have last night in Soho the hell out of this. Yeah. This idea of lowbrow and highbrow art and like maybe she gets sort of, you know, she's quite a twisted person as we see throughout the film. Maybe she gets sort of indoctrinated into that and that ties into the rest of the trilogy. I was just a little disappointed they didn't push that further. But the film itself I thought was very enjoyable, very stylistic and fun and gruesome and horrific and and Mia Goff is outstanding she's excellent in the film so I really enjoyed that now there's one other film I saw Zeke mm-hmm. I don't know if you caught this in the last week I don't know it's called Old Dads no I did see it on Netflix I was mm. going to watch it I was going to watch it yes but uh yeah it's just been a real hectic week I honestly like I straight was having to think. I was like, what have I watched in the last mm. week? I pretty much just finished Bad Batch Season 2 and I thought that was really solid. Oh, very good. Um, but I have not managed to sink my teeth into too much in the last week. So, mm, But enough. Jake, hit me with it. Old okay. Daz, Bill Burr directorial. It is. Debut. Um, 
Yeah. So we 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 said it last week on the show. We we both sort of were concerned, and it's 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 nothing directly to do with him. It's just this idea of like, okay, well, he is a stand-up comedian, gets a shot at doing a film. We realistically pose the question: these people that have these directorial debuts, these uh, comedians or actors that then decide I'm going to operate behind the camera, but then to proceed to perform in the film. Yes. What is the extent of direction are they giving? Because there are people that can do it. I mean, we might be talking about a certain director that appears in his own film later in the show. <laughs> um, although in a much more much limit more limited capacity. But, yes. <laughs> um, there's that sort of extent where if you're so busy trying to be in front of the camera, and particularly in a comedy film, where there is a very high chance you're going to be ad-libbing massive portions of the mm. film, apart from key plot points. Where's the direction? Or are you, you're, you're allowed to ad-lib, but people around you aren't allowed to ad-lib. And then what is that going to look like? And Yeah. I, I think for the big thing for me is, okay, obviously first time jumping into the director's chair and like, what, what is Bill Burr's concept of, a funny movie. Now, I did hear the quote. I think one of the, I either him or someone involved in the film did quote it as it's basically a Bill Burr stand-up special with a narrative, which I don't mind the concept of that. I don't mind the concept of taking a different medium. I mean, it's kind of like not that we have much nice things to say about the film Annette, but that is a rock opera with a narrative sort of slapped onto it, mm-hmm. and that, that it's that's interesting. I find that very interesting. and the concept of a stand-up special. Would, I mean, it's what um, Bo Burnham does. With Inside, it's a bit more experimental. This is not quite that. It is very, very, very simplistic, boring, unfunny, and a little nonsensical just storyline about these old dads. I don't even think they're all dads. I mean, I don't know why he's even called all dads, to be honest. So it's basically Bill Burr and it's his shtick of um, you know anti-political correctness and all of that and punching down PC culture and and we both love his stand-up work and his comedic chops and I, I, even he, the direction he takes with F is for family and he's one well, of the this is it they had creative leads on that show too so there's potential there like we it's not like he's incapable of telling a, a you know and a lot of those aspects obviously that comes from him growing up but mm. there's a good through line narrative in F is for family it's nothing like jaw-dropping or heart there's some good moments over the course of the show and it sticks the landing well enough but there's something there well that's it and and efforts for family is specifically you know and for those who don't know it's it's an animated series i think it's set in the mid 70s yes and it's early mid 70s exactly and it's basically looking back in an age where parents were allowed to slap their kids and and kids were allowed to injure themselves and Mm. this whole concept and and but the thing is what's special about the show is that Bill Burr he doesn't play himself in the show he's playing his own father and in the show itself is almost like a big self-reflection of him like oh well I hated my father and the things he did and said to me but now that I'm in his shoes I'm his age and I'm having kids there's a level of understanding there and this show F is for Family really felt like the 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 glue to that that theme that idea and that's where his voice comes through and i feel like he is trying to do something similar in old dads this idea of being scared of fatherhood and 
you know, sort of feeling out of touch with the world around him and raising a kid in today's age. But when I watched the film, it kind of had the same thing that Afterlife had on Netflix, which for me was essentially just Bill Burr, or in, or in that the case of that show, Ricky Gervais, basically just practicing stand-up routine on camera, creating characters, the snowflakes, just so he can rip them apart. It, it loses so much of that authenticity that his stand-up work does. Mm. And it's even worsened by the fact that now it has to be edited like a movie. So his beautiful train of words and the way he delivers his jokes, the setups and punchlines, they're all sort of chopped up through the edit. So there's not that flow that his stand-up, or even his interviews with Conan, for example, have. It loses everything that makes Bill Burr special. And in turn, you just get a film that, that barely has a plot, I laughed maybe... I chuckled maybe once. I can't even remember what the joke was. That's I was a, extremely that's disappointed a, that's with a, That's a dads. tough sell too, even, um, especially someone who was going to watch it. And to be honest... I, I think I you was, should still watch it because... The skepticism's there though, and you're 100% right. I mean, for this particular comedian, um, the beauty in his... Co- and quite a few comedians is that sense of, like you said, flow, but his particular style is... It's a whingy, complainy... Comedian. That's the Bill Burr style. There's no... He goes on massive... Elon, his bits are massive elongated rants. Mm. Um, whereas, you know, some other comedians have different senses. They tell stories and um, they, they rely heavily on anecdotal comedy or, or they have pacing or they're musically based. And his was the fact that he was angry about this one politically incorrect ideology and mm. then just blowing it out of proportion and mm. you'd find it funny. That's what, at his at his best, that's what he did. I mean, um, and like you said, when you add in the editing aspects or the idea of it's just a collection of bits where he takes apart these people he's complaining about yep. to their face, that's not the same. There's it's- a scene where it's in the trailer... When I think he his kid scratches himself and he's like, oh, I'll just rub dirt on it. And then someone comes, oh, you should really put, you know, you should really do this. And then he's like, oh, like, are you a doctor? No. Oh, well, the, you know, then get out of here. Like, go, go on Twitter and, and write a post about how you're the hero of this story. And it's like, it kind of feels like you're doing that right now by making this movie, by making yourself out to be the hero in all of these scenarios. Yeah. And like the, and it's interesting because the that's the point. Like like these big long rants, they're irrational rants. Mm. They're they're the thoughts we have in our head, but we never vocalise. And that's kind of why we like him as a comedian. It's like it's, but it's irrational. What we're thinking is stupid. Like, yeah. but when he says it out loud, we go, yeah, I agree with you. But also, like, it's really stupid that we think that. Like, yeah. and to personify that character, the Bill Burr. You know, mostly is, but you're right. There's that exaggerated level on stage that makes him all that much funnier. And to personify that into a character in this constructed story, and I mean, all stories are constructed, but you know what I mean? Like, that level of authenticity is stripped away. Yeah. And and I will say, like, I didn't completely hate the film. There's one moment, there's one scene when I was like, okay, maybe Bilbo does know what to do with the camera at times. Because there's a scene where he has to go and apologize to a bunch of parents at this preschool and as he walks in, he thinks he's just apologizing to the principal. And then he sees the big crowd of people. He's like, oh boy, what's going on? And I love that in that moment, his wife on one side holding his arm and the principal subtly grabs the other arm and they both sort of lead him into the center of the frame. And then they cut between him and then the low angle of him being stared down by all the crowds. It's like, 
okay, this seems interesting because he's like visually reinforcing the awkward scenario through use of blocking and camera. Mm. And it was the one time that I was like, oh, he's doing that. Cool. There's something there. And then everything else, like he said, is, oh, just put the camera there and, and riff for 10 minutes and we'll get a five minute scene out of it. Next scene, next scene, next scene. Yeah. So uh, there's hints of his you know, directorial genius in here. You just need to crack it open a bit more. Settle down. There's a, there's a hint of a director in there, really. It's not just an SNL, an elongated SNL yeah, skit. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, that's that's very fair. Um, I still think you should watch in the sense that it's Bill Burr. Like, I, I wouldn't recommend anyone just watch this film, obviously, as huge Bill Burr fans. I mean, we should watch it just to see, you know. And and my hope is that he makes another one and, and drastically improves. And it's not reviewing very well, so he it's not like I'm the only one in the world who didn't like this movie, so... Yeah. He'll probably see the feedback, hopefully take it on and make something new. Yeah. Or he'll just stick to being in front of the camera. Yeah. Either yeah. way. <laughs> but that's uh, everything I've seen in the last week, Zeke. Excellent. Well, as I re yeah, just to reiterate, I haven't caught anything else in the last week except the film of the week. Oh. Mm, well, what, what about that film of the week, Zeke? Well, I don't know, Jake. What are we watching? Uh, I think this week on the show, Zeke, we're watching Killers of the Flower Moon. Whose land is this? My land. Well, 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 our war hero has arrived. You made a good choice coming back here. Those days are the finest, wealthiest, and most beautiful people on God's earth. They outsmart everybody. They have the say. Who gets the oil? Son, I got a question. You like women? <laughs> That's my weakness. <laughs> Well, we mix these families together, and that estate money flows the right direction. It'll come to us. Shomikasi. That's how you are. I don't know what you said, but it must have been Indian for handsome devil. (laughs) (laughs) Why did you come here? I work with my uncle. You scared of him? Oh, he's a, he's the nicest man in the world. The Osage, their time is over. We got to take back control of our home. I was sent down from Washington, D.C. to see about these murders. We have so many deaths, we've lost count. It's just bad luck. Seems more like an epidemic than bad luck to me. The Osage is dying by the enemy. Do not let them die alone. Evil surrounds my heart. When oil is discovered in 1920s Oklahoma under Osage Nation land, the Osage people are murdered one by one until the FBI steps in to unravel the mystery. Dun, dun, dun! As we said in the first part of the show, the FBI is but uh, a... a means to basically enable the third act of this film. And mm. they are uh, straight off the back. This is not the birth of the FBI film. This is, uh, although you could easily f- reframe this film and do a film based around that aspect. But to Let's... be honest, mm. um, you know, and as we unpack the film, we will talk about how probably, that film wouldn't be as interesting because of mm. that inactive sort of nature. Jeez, it's a, 
I, I think one of the first takeaways I had, Jake, it's a tough year to be in the best actor category <laughs> for the Oscars. No, it's going to be a good year. I like in it. A, in a bad year, you would probably hand Os- Oscars out to everyone, basically, mm. um, so far. But Yeah, wonderful performances throughout the cast. But I find it so interesting that you start our discussion with that, specifically this idea of like one could frame the story from the FBI's perspective, but would it be as interesting? And that's exactly what happened with Martin Scorsese when he first went to adapt the book, which is exactly that. It's the FBI point of view of the story. That's what the script was. That's what the film was going to be. I think it was Paramount that funded it, and I think they sort of stepped away from it when Scorsese, and this was partly Leonardo DiCaprio's input as well, and a few people of, no, we need to make this from the perspective of the Osage people. And that that was that was what was the film was going to be about. Mm. And it was quite a late change in pre-production to, no, nope, we're going to scrap that and start the film over. And you're right, the FBI are almost like a, not a footnote necessarily, but you're right, a means to an end to end the story. But so much about this film is about the tragedy and the horror of what happened to these people and, and the, the paranoia that arose and this this loss of trust and and these people that we're following, in particular, Ernest, Leonardo DiCaprio's character, that by the end of the film is just so despicable, and so many of the characters in the film are despicable. Yeah, it's that corruption that comes mm. with greed and 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 money and and power and and you know it, that's a that's a story as old as time, particularly in the the directorial book mm. of <laughs> Martin Scorsese, which you know we've seen. We talked about the the rise and fall of Henry Hill um, mm. over his three decades of being a gangster last week, and um, as we've said, we've got the Jordan Belford story it's, and it's Wolf a, of Wall Street. It's the Scorsese logbook. The if it's not about the lonely, is it Frank Sheridan in the Irishman? Is that his name? Uh, I think it's Frank yes. Sheridan. Yeah. yeah. If it's not about the lonely um, and misunderstood, it's about the. Uh, well, earnest character that gets corrupted, seduced and corrupted by a, a world um, beyond, you know, sort of, not really beyond their control, they kind of voluntarily succumb mm. to it, but it is that seduction of a, a corruptible, um, less than ethical and morally sound lifestyle. Mm. Um, I mean, that's one of the big achievements of this film, not to jump too much into the, the deeper side of the discussion, but with the portrayal of Ernest in this film, and, and I think, like I said, he was quite a late addition in the script. Uh, in, and I think the reason that Leo wanted to play him specifically, the the nephew of, um, obviously, Robert De Niro's character, William Hale, it, he was the one people knew least about in the real-life story. And I think that's where the interest in making him... I think he's the protagonist of this. As great as the whole cast, I think he's the through line through it. We see he gets the film. He starts getting off a train. He's a World War One, I, I guess, vet if you want to call him that, mm-hmm. uh, or a soldier. Um, but the film doesn't really linger on that aspect. I think the the point is that we're starting almost with this fresh palette of a character, whose only real tie to this this other character is that he's his uncle, and throughout the entire film we're seeing him. You're right, slowly be corrupted, slowly buy into his own ideology of being in love with this woman with lily gladstone's character and i i remember i was waiting for that moment i was waiting for the film to point out the moment when even though he's been sort of pushed and prodded to marry this woman where's the beat in the story when we see he really does love her 
Like there's a there's a true attraction to her in addition to the scam that's being played underneath. Absolutely. And we never quite got that definitive beat. And I think by the end of the film, we get the definitive beat that it was all he was completely corrupted. And to what point was Ernest uh, doing it with malice? I think it's quite vague. I mean, you can make an argument that he's in a way a victim of of Hale's actions and manipulation as well. But I love that sort of tightrope that Scorsese goes with his character of never making it super definitively how, even though I think he's a despicable character, how much of that is his own fault? Yeah. Where where, where do you stand on this, I guess, well, Venn diagram? I, I think, to be honest, I, I don't think I've ever seen a film tackle uh, Manifest Destiny, which is a massive, obviously, the US idea of um, the belief that came with the western occupation of, mm. of the united states with that idea of i was born to be on this land and i was supposed to own this land mm. aspect i don't think i've seen a film quite uh show it in this way and, and also i've never seen a film portray a different perspective on colonization you mm. know um and i find it uh, remarkable just sitting here sort of stewing and thinking about the film that we're watching white occupiers basically yeah take over the land systematically but not Mm. in the way of of by brute force or in this imperialized methodology of occupation that we had seen in so many other depictions Mm. of even if we look at just native american films and also we're watching a protagonistic character get enveloped by uh, the native american culture the the culture of the osage but not in the romanticized way of something like Dances with Wolves does mm. with Kevin Costner, you know, where he falls and, you know, he gets in, imbe- you know, he gets imbued in this culture of the Native American and sees their plight and takes up arms against the white man in this beautiful romanticized sense. Mm. <laughs> um, instead, we're seeing basically the systematic uh, infection that the Western white culture came and we're also seeing the that systematic and physical, you know, occupation of this power and resource that the Osage have from the start of the film. We're seeing it all stripped back, and it comes back to that very first scene where they're burying the the peace pipe. They're mm. they're talking about the ways of their culture are seceding, and they are succumbing to that white man way. Mm. Um, of bringing in industry and capitalism into the 20th century. And that's such a, you know, there are, there's Osage people crying and, you know, it's this nice uh, eight, nine minute uh, prologue basically Mm. to kind of what's going to happen over the course of that three hour film. Yeah. It's sort of like a microcosm of, you're right. The, their way being sort of stolen and trampled on and, and traded away. And it's interesting because then we cut forward, we assume a period of time, probably 20, maybe 30 years, maybe even a little bit more than that, um, where the Osage people, we, we're kind of taken aback because as um, people, consumers of cinema, and most of our knowledge of the historical context behind this film comes from cinema. Mm. We know the Native Americans were very similar in terms of uh, had their own sort of occupation of their their country through, obviously, you know, the British and and then eventually the Americans. But we had never seen a film that had positioned 
what we thought these Native Americans in positions of power. They're the ones mm. who have access to the oil fields. They have access to the natural resources and are seemingly incredibly well off beyond comprehension in their their rich and uh, rich wealth and we only see this through glancing blows and, and Ernest's perspective as photos are being taken at forty dollars a photo and <laughs> which is equivalent to today. This is a hundred years ago. Several hundred dollars, yeah at least <laughs> It's it's interesting because we've never seen the I this wish people culture. charged us that much to take their photos, Zeke. <laughs> yeah. We've never seen this culture in such a position of power and and seemingly mm. thriving in this bubble, basically. Yeah, and, and like because you're right, my my perception of and, and obviously as an Australian I'm not overly familiar with American history other than, you know, what, what the very basics of it, I guess. Yep. But this idea that, that uh, you know, native American Indians were pretty much traded magic beans and that's how they lost all their wealth and their power. And this film it kinda highlights like that's not necessarily the case. It was a lot more subtle than that and that I think it's even the line at the start of the film that the Osage people were the, the luckiest or the most wealthiest people in the country. And I think the luck is sort of that it's luck, but then it's also now their targets. And there's a great line that Molly has where she says, I think like the, the pattern on her back is now uh, a target. And that's such a beautiful way to portray this idea of, you know, they were wealthy and they were well off and they owned the oil and the land. But, and it's interesting because I was really confused. The first time we meet Lily Gladstone's character, she's asking for money to help her sick mother. And what I didn't realize is that this is essentially the white guardians that were required by law to manage their money. So even in this stage where they are the most wealthy people in the country, they still have to ask white people for their own money. I guess it's like a bank. <laughs> I guess but it's, it's also, and, and it's only, they can only really exist within that bubble because if you mm. go later in the film when Molly is dying and requests to go to the state, Washington, the yeah. capital. Yeah. She can't. He won't originally allow her the three hundred dollars yeah. to go. They they fight. He yeah rejects uh, it. <laughs> um. So it's this. It was this false sense of power over power and lordship over because of your mm. basically your birthright, which is then, well, as we see over the f- film, progressively exploited by a collection of different uh, Anglo um, American people and. It's so interesting because, you know, particularly De Niro's character, this character that has been this, uh, one of the pioneers of the Osage area, mm. one of the, the earlier settlers or earlier benefactors of Benef- this yeah, ru- a good ru- it, yeah. routine, um, has learnt their language, has mm. learnt their culture and customs, not as a well, as a bridge of community, but really as a tool of exploitation and... Mm. and it comes back to the system of him performing multiple acts of insurance fraud. And um, his mindset is so skewed because, like you said, the film opens with with the Osage people devastated that their way is being lost. And we jump further into the film when Hale has that monologue where he's talking about, like, I've, you know, they, they will love me. It doesn't matter if they know what I've done. They love because I've introduced them into the new century. I've given them all these tools, these industrial tools, and they will love me for it. It's such a skewed mindset that. I generally think he believes he's like helping them out yeah. when you're right. It's, it's all just a play to enrich himself and his own people. And like, just that concept. I mean, it's like I said, the, the, it's the 
the microcosm of what this entire community does to the Osage people in uh, in earnest to marrying Molly, which it, it's just representative of the entire community's sort of the underbelly yeah. that's going on in in their tactical way to just to make more money. And more than most other Scorsese films, you could look at something like Goodfellas and be like, okay, well, there's a money aspect to the film and the motivations yeah. of the characters, but a big part of it is the the entrancement in, in and the exciting the exciting nature of a crime life and here it it's more simple than that it's just money it's just money i mean i i i think yeah it's that money greed and power thing but what's interesting and i think that there there might be a little bit more to that motivation that comes back to that sense of of wanting to to sort of control the destiny and fate of a people, that idea rather than mm. money, monetary power, it comes from the fact that when we um, meet De Niro's character in Hale, um, he's already a well-off man. He's got a nice homestead. Yes. He's got a, a good farm. He's not a poorly man by any stretch. Um, he's not desperate. And he's one of the key this. pillars of this town. Mm. Um, and it's just fascinating because then the question becomes why because it's very early on we see there's a conversation between uh, the four sisters who I believe it's uh, Molly, Rita Ooh, let's um, see, I should have it here Molly, Rita, yeah there's Rita um, yeah I'm forgetting the names as well uh, how do I not have it in my document I thought I had Anna, all this, oh there's Anna and Minnie Minnie, and that's it Minnie's the one who dies first. Um, and it's interesting because they have a conversation and they're kind of talking about... Um, ref- they're referring to basically all of these uh, surrounding white men as, as different animals that are often mm-hmm. of a, a sly variation. In And Molly's uh, uh, description is uh, DiCaprio's character in um, Ernest is, is like a coyote. He's kind mm-hmm. of like a scavenger and... Uh, cunning and sly scavenger, whereas I think it is Anna that's there's his it's snake. A snake, yeah. Um, but it's interesting because there's that self awareness there very early on that all they want, all these surrounding white people just want their money and exploitation, and it's that sense of we we already find that there's this there's no resolution there. In fact, their mother, um, Lizzie is is Lizzie Q is kind of the one that says how that wants to keep them almost to just people of their of their own um, tribe and, mm. and Osage people to ensure that they're not targets to be exploited. But yeah. it's just interesting because it is that true succumb... We see the succumbing of all four of them one way or another, whether it's for love, lust, uh, indulgence. They almost... Uh, basically their ends are almost to the fact of they're being explicitly targeted by these horrible men, but they're succumbing to, like you said, the, the, the effect that people like Hale had on the world, bringing them into the 20th century. And, um, that's where they lost all their power Mm. to these, uh, grand things like, which could be as simple as alcohol. It's, I do like that. You mentioned that there is almost that self-awareness and that the sisters are all chatting, self-aware that they are targets and like, oh, they're just with you money. I can't remember which sister it is who tells her. He says, uh, she says, oh, but um, 
you know William Hale they they already they already come for money that they're already wealthy and I think that is a key moment in Molly's sort of arc of accepting Ernest's love because mm. there there is as skewed as it may be and as it, as it comes from a different origin of of portrayal and 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 cunning there is a form of love in there and i definitely think molly does fall for ernest and, and it's sad oh, I, it's... I think so too but just, i don't think ernest is nearly as malicious um i think he's an idiot mm. i think he's just genuinely an idiot that that was fearful of of his uncle and was did lacked the wherewithal and intelligence and to do anything autonomously um and we kind of get that i think in we his, get even that in the last er- well and even when we first meet ernest the fact that when he steps off the train he's enamored by the world around him there's a couple of men starting a fight oh, and he elects to yes. just wail on it too like in this dumb just immediately going with the crowd like yeah, behavior such a great moment yeah um and one of the first times Molly invites Ernest into the house, one of the uh, few questions she poses to him, are you afraid of your uncle? And there's a hesitation there. And I mean, it becomes very apparent by the midpoint of the film that the, uh, you know, William has all of the power, Mm. um, from a, from a good old spanking. Um, but (laughs) classic. It's, and really doesn't lose that power until, he testifies against him in the, the very vinyl, like the final 10, 15 minutes. And it's not out of anything other than the fact that he lost a child. I think he does earnestly like Molly. And I actually think we can, what is really interesting and credit to Leo, because I've never, I, I like Leo as an actor. Don't get me wrong, but mm-hmm. it's like not every performance has been the be all and end all for me. I don't like as other people think he's, like incredible. Well, no, he probably is an incredible actor over the course of a career, but I think a lot of people were like, "Oh my god, he's a, like next tier." He's never mm. always done it for me. Um, sometimes I think when, the when films I... he's in, uh, the things I like watching, right? He's, he's always been steady, steady to great. Yeah, he 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 sort of. I feel like the last few performances of his, he kind of slips in and does what the film needs of him without necessarily elevating the material in the sense. And, like, I mean, I'm not going to sit here and criticise Leonardo DiCaprio's acting. Yeah. God, no. I didn't think this was my favourite performance necessarily from him. They, I've noticed the um, even just today, the internet is memeing him a lot with his, like, the fact that 90% of the film, he's just got, like, a pouty face. Which I guess Florence Pugh I, was the target. Now it's him. I find it interesting because, to be honest, uh, I think... What does he have to smile about, the, really? The, <laughs> I think he's actually doing a lot of... Um, a lot going, I think in the last maybe 30 minutes of the film, we did talk about it a little bit yesterday, but it, he probably doesn't have too much to do and it does probably draw out a little bit, but there are moments of genuine where he's putting so much complexity in his emotions mm. in his face, which really makes you ask. I don't think he, he maliciously sought out to, um, target this Osage woman, exploit her for her wealth and greed and, and, systematically uh, kill like all of her sister the sisters or mm. or have a hand in killing all of the sisters um by third party because it was mostly just out of fear against his uncle the incompetence to think otherwise 
But there's a moment, like, when he has to switch from giving Molly just insulin to adding in the... Uh, assuming some form of poison. Yeah. Um, where he hates it, and to the point where he takes it himself. Mm. Um, that's all in there. Um, and there's a genuine love for her as a woman there and for the fact that she has birthed three of his children. Yeah. Um... I think the key comes for me, because I thought I remember thinking this when the scene plays out, when the child dies of of whooping cough, and we we get a brief flash of Molly's distraught reaction to it, and then we cut pretty quickly to Ernest's reaction to it, and obviously William Hale's right there in the cell next to him, but the fact that we really linger on his reaction to the death, I remember thinking that's a really interesting choice that we're, we're focusing on his despair as opposed to the mother's despair and the more i thought about it the more i realized i think it's trying to juxtapose the fact that we we've seen her despair several times throughout the film there are several moments where she's wailing and in, in, in deep shock and and horror at what's happened to her family and you know we were talking yesterday about the one when we're looking down the staircase and i think it's the last sister of hers to die just the 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 anger and the and the fear mm. in her scream. And what I realized by finally cutting away to Ernest's reaction, this is the only time that he's truly felt the the effects and the horrors of what, what's happening. And that's the thing that gets him to testify at the end of the film. And it, it's a shame because it's like, this is a person he's married to, to this woman who has lost everything throughout the course of the film. And there's a sense of empathy and sadness there, but he doesn't, he really can't quite feel it until it happens to him, to his own bloodline. And I found it really interesting that that's how Scorsese highlights that, is, okay, well, now we're going to just spend time on him. There is a self-awareness to this film, and it depends if you want to jump sort of into the ending here. Yeah, we, can, we can go. I think the final scene with very self-referential, very One Night in Miami-esque, where uh, instead of the typical biopic, like, oh, here are some title cards about what happened to all the characters, we're going to have a very interesting... Freeze frame. (laughs) Exactly, the freeze frame, the thumbs up to camera. No, we're going to do this radio show with all these Foley artists, and it's going to be really interesting and very very whitewashed, (laughs) which I think is the main point of that scene. There are white voice actors doing um, Doing Osage Osage voices. voices, Yeah, and it's it's uncomfortable and almost funny, despite the fact that what they're saying is sort of these really sad fates of the characters we just spent three and a half hours with. And I think that is very self-referential and self critiquing the fact that Martin Scorsese himself is a white guy making this film and he he went he you know did the yards to get Osage sort of support behind this film and they get their input into the script and and how events should be played and how their culture should be represented on screen but at the end of the day when that scene started I was like oh this like they they understand that this is almost ironic what they're doing and Martin of course, Marty shows up himself <laughs> and does the final line. Um, well, what did you think of that scene? Did it did it kind of work in context? With I the think rest it of the does. Film? I think okay. I think to be honest, it's such an interesting way of of not. Um, one one thing I really like, and I'll put this out even out of the the confines of the film, but it's Martin. Mm. Where's Martin's doing the promotion for the film? Mm. 
he's not like, oh, at the end, you understand why, like, or he's not sitting there being like, oh, I'm a white guy making this film because he knows that it's going to be in the film. It's going to speak for itself. Yeah. And um, it is, it's one of those interesting things, but in, in both ways, it comes back to the truth seeking and truth telling aspect. Mm. And we can even tie this to us as, as you know, with, as Australians to our Aboriginal Australians and mm. obviously having a vote that even so recently, you know, caused so much division in our country and, mm. and kind of really showed sort of, uh, where sort of the mentality of uh, or the zeitgeist of the Australian people is, mm. um, however, which way you swing on that. But what's really important, I think, is the fact that that these stories, because so much of that culture was systematically or ruthlessly uh, taken apart and, and destroyed to the point where some people can't even recount, like the history is almost mm. lost forever. Yeah. Um, it is in the place of artists and artists of every culture and creed um, to do their research and then tell these stories. It's the same as if, um, you know, as an Anglo white Australian, if I took the time meticulously, like you said, sought after elders and stuff, you can tell those stories. Mm -hmm. You just got to do the research and tell that, that story. And it ends up becoming such an impactful thing because it's a part of a culture and history that you and I would have, mm never been near to unless we sort it out and the odds of us seeking it out is astronomically small mm. whereas now there's a film there that is exploring just actually what happens in a place like this a place where these are supposed to be, like I said the luckiest and the wealthiest people in the United uh, the US at the time and the luckiest uh, collection of Native Americans because they were on natural resources mm. they weren't just genocidally wiped out or, or given nothing but yeah. beans to show for hundreds of, th you know, tens of thousands of years of being on that land. Mm. Um, and yet they succumb to the same fate. It just by different means. And it resonates with that final scene. And it resonates even within the confines of the film. When we see the scene, when Ernest is um, interjected at the first hearing to speak with his lawyer, mm. um, played by Brendan Fraser. Yeah, boy. Um, yep. Uh, apparently, I, apparently there's a little divisiveness online about his performance and that he's, he's overly wacky compared to the rest of the performances in this film, which is, is that not the point? I would say John Lithgow gives just as much energy <laughs> in the exact same scene. He does like a exuberant, loud sort of cry but that was sort of i think how the the they hallmark those court cases at the time and it's almost a little bit of bafos as well where we're, yeah. we're waiting for this for him to testify and it's all really serious and there's like you know hundreds of people in the room and he's sort of feeling the weight of this of these eyes all on him and then brendan just stands up and does his line it's almost like a a comedic relief in a sense mm. uh, but also represents even at this late in the stage, what they're willing to do and to go for to save their own asses. Yeah, and but but then it becomes very apparent when when Ernest agrees to speak to to Fraser and obviously the rest of them, and he, he goes into a room that's nothing but black, like mm. it's just black, like yeah. the corporate of corporate black. It's almost comedic and it's over the top, like 
look how inherently industrialized and evil. Yeah, but it's a room of, of it's, it's not just William, and and this is kind of the interesting thing, and this is kind of like, you know, we haven't really even talked about the fact that there is no massive big blowout scenes between the trifecta of characters. There's mm. no big screaming matches between any of the combinations. They don't play the end game theme and have them run to war against each other. <laughs> and it's dun, interesting dun, because dun, it becomes dun. very apparent in that scene when Ernest looks around the room and mm. we see all of these people, a part of the Scorsese ensemble in this town that have basically all had a hand in ensuring the deaths of these people to yeah. ensure that yes, William it may indirectly inherit well, Ernest inherits the land. But Ernest is so stupid and mm. and just happy with he just likes money, which he'll get plenty <laughs> of money, but everyone there will systematically benefit from the demise of of these uh the Osage people. These Osage people. And that's tr- truly evil in its mm. in its sense and its scope. There's a great um, shot in the trailer, which... Did you watch the trailers for this at all? I think I watched it once with Haunting in Venice. Okay, there would have been a... Tra- um, was, it the, was it the one where it sort of it um, plays the line, you know, can you see the wolves in this picture? And it plays it underneath the shot of all the of all the white folk and the lawyer in the corner. And it's it's so clever. And it only... I, I, I kind of wish the film could almost do something similar... But I mean, the connections there. We yeah. made the connections. They are the wolves in that picture. But and it's it's just, it's such a good moment. And like you said, the the ending is so impactful for that. And, and I think it's really important that that's sort of one of the points. There is is this story. If you know, and it's obviously Scorsese is doing this research. But do you wait for? Do you just have to wait for an Osage person to tell this story? No, mm-hmm. that's not how storytelling works. Stories are passed down from generation to generation, and in terms of these, when it's in terms of cultural preservation, I mean, it's important that anyone can tell any story if they put the time and effort into ensuring its its validity, its mm. gumption. Um, and if Scorsese had played it safe, this this white Italian man mm. from Sicilian descent, if he had played it safe and he had gone the FBI route, yeah, right, we would have been left with a sufficiently lesser product, a, pro- a product that would have been Good. It would have been good. Let's be real with Scorsese. It yeah. wouldn't have been a bad film. But would it have the same potence? Would it have mm. the same dimensions? Would it actually explore the cultural aspect of Osage? What it was like living in that Osage County, in that town, mm. at that point? No, it wouldn't I have. completely agree. Yeah. To everything you said, no, it wouldn't explore those things, or at least nowhere near the level that they are in this film. And it's, it's just a more boring sort of recounting of events, which... I'm it sure... ends up being like mostly like the last 20, 30 minutes of the film. It almost feels autobiographical. <laughs> Which is ironic because I mean, that's something that we were saying leaving the cinema. And, and to your point about, you know, what even though it's self-critical of Martin Scorsese to say how white people have taken the story and rolled with it, I still think it works because the first thing we all said when we walked out of the cinema is, oh, I didn't realize this aspect about the Osage people. It makes me want to do more research and learn more about it. I mean, that uh, that achieves its goal right there. But the, the other thing we were talking about is that that last, I would say, 30-minute stretch where it really does become about the the, the, the um, hearings and, and the characters are in jail. Pretty much from the moment that Ernest gets arrested um, by good old Todd, <laughs> Jesse Plemons, um, I think we would have both agree that's probably when the pace of the film sort of hits a rock. Yeah, it sort of, it sort of plateaus a little. It sort of... 
there's not as much um i think there's not as much enticement at that point i think mm-hmm. uh, it tends to it does sort of meander a little bit there i think um there's there's enough there to obviously keep it going but yeah i do think it does slow a little bit there i would say i think and it's tricky because there's a few things that i mean you've got a three and a half hour movie there's a good chance that it this is just at this point our bodies kind of given into the fact that we've just been slumped in a chair for three mm. plus hours and and it's because i i remember that moment in the irishman of the same thing of us in the cinema together and like you know enjoying the story and taking it all in and then it just kind of hits a point where like Oh god, what's the running time? <laughs> and it's not like either of us checked our watches or anything. No. And, and we were very proud to say that you, me, and we went with our good friend Luke Moore, who we should yes. have on the show at some point. Um, the three of us didn't once get up and check our watches or leave to go to the bathroom. Not that you know, if you need to, you need to. It's fine. We yeah, had a good cinema. Credit to the cinema. Good we had cinema. a good cinema. No phone checkers. No disruptors. It was very good. But I think the other thing is, well, let's look at the story at this point of view. This is the point when. The FBI's tactic to extract information out of Ernest is to keep him awake for many, many, many hours. And I, I think like three days or 70 mm. hours, he said that he was up. And that is this just their way from an editing pacing point of view to make the audience feel that same level of exhaustion. So I'll oh, just give him the information. Just tell him so it can all be over. You can almost kind of argue that was <laughs> maybe yeah. the point of the pacing the rock. But it also just felt a little jarring and a little quiet at that point. Yeah, where it it lost that energy and the, and there is this sense of exhaustion. It's so, almost like the Brendan Fraser scream wakes you back up a little bit. You're like, "Hey, <laughs> all right, here we go." Yep, I was here. Oh, uh, he's been missing for three weeks. Yes. Oh, it's so good. Um, yeah, but the, I guess the other argument is that at this point, because I I think it's I said like he was to such you, a good looking man in the Mummy. Just, just, he was, he's a real, a real heartthrob. He's, he's still a good-looking man right now, is he? He's a big unit. Yeah, we love him. He's a big teddy bear. An Oscar-winning teddy bear. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I think the other thing is, at this point in the story, if they might be trying to reinforce the exhaustion that Ernest is experiencing at this part, part of the story. But is it just that they want to maintain that like heavily detailed, highly autobiographical pacing where every detail and nuance must be shown mm. or or would it have been worth to have more of an energetic montage as we cut between the hearing and then Ernest in the cell and that that whole back and forth of not testifying deciding to testify would that have played out better as sort of this shortened montage or did the film benefit from breathing more and then isolating those moments from the death of his child and the and then the all of those moments, I should say. Those I don't know. I, 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 I probably not. To be honest, I do mm. think you could probably cut twenty minutes from this film, and it wouldn't hinder it at all. Mm. And it would probably be towards the end there, because I think what's really important is is the trifecta of performances. And I, I think in that last little bit, Ernest to me is the character that really doesn't. You know, he the fact that he flips and flops, that he mm. goes from that sort of flip flop perspective, and and only when his his youngest daughter um, daughter dies, um, does he then get sort of atone and and speak up. Is you know, I I think that we really take away from like Molly, the story of Molly. There, we don't get a lot of her in that time because she's just sort of recovering. Yeah. Um, and we, she really doesn't get a moment to sort of 
the like I said the the most emotion we kind of see out of her is that moment when Rita is is killed in the bombing, mm. um, and we get to see that great moment of anger and and sorrow mixed together in this beautiful anguish sequence. But that's kind of it until her, her final interaction with Ernest and. I guess there's really nowhere else. I mean, at this point, her character is so scarred. Yeah. Emotionally, there is no coming back from that no. moment. So I guess you're kind of trapped, and all you need from her at that point. But like I said, I, I think a montage could have pieced pieced it up sure. maybe a little bit. Yeah. You need that obviously that interaction at the you dumb boy scene with with Brendan Fraser, <laughs> you which, dumb which to be boy. honest to me so that good. epitomizes his character. He is a dumb boy. Mm. Like he really is just an idiot. Like he's an idiot that he's a yes man. Regardless of what his moral is, he can't stick to it. And there's he's no going back and forth. There's no charm or flair like Leota's character that's mm. got this. You know, technically is also kind of a yes man, uh, but you know he's obviously sort of gets caught up in the wrong stuff because of the actions of someone out of his control and mm-hmm. gets sort of sucked into the the spiral of his life because of basically the actions of Joe Pesci's character. Mm. Um, but I mean, Tommy, but it, in this film, it's like Ernest is is incompetent from the start and doesn't change. And we see it so many times and we get reminded pretty regularly, regularly enough in, in very obvious fashions that everyone just think like all of the the puppeteers think mm. he's an idiot. All of the other, the old, the older statesmen of this town think he's an idiot. His uncle thinks he's an idiot. Mm. The lawyer that... Shows up in the last fifteen minutes of the film, thinks he's an idiot. You know, most of the just towns, to call him a dumb boy. The tones for, yeah, but it's true because you know to the point where at the midpoint of the film, he literally is on his bent over and mm. he's getting spanked. Like <laughs> that, you can't message it. And because he tried to take the lead, be the quarterback, call the play, yeah. and completely muffed it. Mm. Um, so it becomes very apparent. And it's so interesting because basically what we see is is sort of this person that was a benefactor of it. And then at the end of the day, William was right. Like the feds didn't let him off free. He got life too. Yeah. That's, um, I mean, at that point, it's so heinous. Like what what would be the, the relief in letting him go? And I'll, we're talking about a real life scenario here. We're not talking about a narrative structure, yeah. so to speak. But yeah, I and I think let's let's dwell on that for a second. This this his obsession with money, and there's a great scene where he's talking. I think he's talking to the guy who ends up stealing the car for the insurance scam. Mm. Where Blackie, he, he Blackie, he kind of he kind of slips, and and he has that. Can't he's talking about money, and and again, this goes back to the moment the start from where you're right. He jump, he just randomly jumps into this this big brawl that he has absolutely no stake in. Or he just kind of goes with the flow of a conversation or or a, or a movement <laughs> in the large picture of the story, where he says he loves money almost or more so than he loves his wife, and I don't think that's an incorrect statement. I think that's him sort of slipping up on a real true feeling, and and the the moment I love as well. It could, it could have been my highlight scene, I guess. I got I got another one in the bank, Zeke. Okay, but I think one of them would be the point when he's talking to. Um, I'm just going to call him Mr. Acker from Better Call Saul, um, where he's he's getting charged. He says, you're charging me Osage prices. These are Osage rates. And he says, he's like, well, I work for a living. You married an Osage, so I, I'm going to charge you Osage prices. I love the moment where he sort of stands up to him, and it's true because it's 
it's so transparent what he's doing. Mm. And yet he immediately gets caught up in this idea of like, you're charging me these prices and I have the money, even though it's his wife's money. And yeah, I, I like that. he, Like you said, I, I the more we talk about him, the more I think you're right, that he is just a dumb boy. <laughs> you're a dumb boy. Oh, but I think the only character better than um, Brendan Fraser's is William J. Burns. He solves crimes, Zeke. Yes, he solved crimes. He solves crimes. Could he solve the crimes of his own walloping? <laughs> um. He solves crimes. Look, I, I feel, to, to I guess to put an end cap on this whole should it have been a montage sequence, I can't complain too much because if you go back to the Irishman discussion we did many, many years ago on this podcast, I do remember saying something along the lines of this whole film feels like a montage until I guess the last hour or so. But the majority of the film feels like a montage and why can't we just do scenes again? And to be fair, this film... It's just scenes. It, it is scenes. It is actual scenes where characters discuss and it's shot reverse shot of Leo and Robert. And so I I got what I asked for <laughs> many years later. You so, did. So I can't complain too much. Look, I, like I said, I think we both sort of fell off the pacing in the last half hour. That's still pretty good to go three hours. <laughs> yeah, good and, job, Marty. And, and good job, Marty. I can't yeah. wait for the four-hour Ridley Scott film later this year. <laughs> Of Napoleon, mm. let's do it. But um, I I think my end cap on that whole argument because there was there was a thing online about oh it's too long and bring back intermissions. Look, I have no problem with bringing back intermissions. Cinemas aren't going to do it because they want they want to bring in as much people and in, in as much session times as possible. They're not going to stretch out the running time of their film even longer by adding an intermission. But I think. Despite the fact that we have respect for these films that can tell their stories in 80 minutes and feel really sharp and and quick and kind of in and out, and like that can work for certain stories, but I I think we need to be careful about longing for films and praising films for just being short. And that there is something to be said about entering this world, you know, the, the, the 1920s, the Osage era, and just getting invested in it and letting the this long large experience sort of consume us i i god forbid i think that's a very fair point and you're probably right we shouldn't praise a film because it's short Mm. a film is exactly the length it it should be Mm. exactly do i feel like there's still but it's a fair point you know we got the film we got and Apart from that, was there really anything that we disliked about the film? Mm. I did think the last drone shot was a little weird. I didn't quite understand it. Oh, the very, very last one. The drum circle. Yeah, I, drone I think shot. for me, I suppose... It's interesting because on the Wikipedia page, it actually says, underneath the radio show description of what happens there, it says, in the present day, the Osage celebrate their culture in a large tribal dance. So I guess that answers one question is that that's meant to be today. That's us jumping forward in time to where we are today. And I guess it's a hint that not only uh, is their culture retained, the memory of their culture retained, but it almost feels like a little bit of a reprieve of we've just seen a, a three and a half hour story of of how these people were slaughtered and destroyed and that by the end of the film, we are left with just the white people, not only the white people who murdered them, but the white people telling the stories about the white people who mm. murdered them. And that this is almost like just a little microcosmic return to form for them. Now, I'm saying that as someone who fought about it for 24 hours. I'm with you. When I first walked out of the cinema, I was like, that's interesting. I wonder why they did that. <laughs> yeah. But I, I kind of think that's where I land on, on that very last shot of the film. 
Easy. Jake. Yes. What was your highlight scene? Woo! Mama. Um, my highlight scene is very early in the film, I would say. Very early. It is. So we're sort of establishing these characters. I think we we have the first conversation between um, Ernest and William Hill. And we, you know, I think at this point we've already met Molly, Lillian Gladstone's character. Lily Gladstone's character, I should say. And it kind of, it just starts randomly cutting to this archival footage of Osage people. And it's narrating this person was such and such. I think like their age. And then it cuts to their dead body sort of resting on the bed. Mm. And it said, um, they died at this age, no investigation. Or um, what was the line? There was no investigation. And what I love about that is the more we see of it, the more violent their deaths are. It is suspicious that, you know, there they are lying in bed dead. But as we go further along, we get to the point where, oh, here's a body sort of disfigured in the lake. There was still no investigation. Here's a- that scared the hell out of me, that gunshot. Yeah. <laughs> that scared the crap out of me. I think I think it's something to do with the the sound design of these like older guns in the nineteen twenties where the the pop where the pop is like the main part yeah. of the sound and it just like just hits you. Scared the crap out of me, Zeke. But I think that's when people say there are Scorsese films out there that are more violent than this from like a technical level, the amount of blood, et cetera, et cetera. But I think the reason people say this feels like his most brutal, bloody, violent film is it's because of the coldness of it. Not just the way it's portrayed and the camera angles and the... It's the realness feel. It's the realness. It's the situation. Yeah. It's these innocent people... And the, the, the malice behind their death. Yeah. I think it's like that combination that just makes it feel so much more uncomfortable to watch. What about you, Zeke? That was a really good choice. <laughs> What's your highlight scene? Well, there's, there's a lot you could pick from. I think um, there is there is a lot to like about this film. I, I think I do like the four sisters at the, the church service mm. as they're discussing sort of basically the encroaching world around them is in yeah. through the the conversation and basically around just men but i found that's quite an interesting sort of sequence and and we get a lot of love there i'll probably go with um there's there's probably a couple scenes i think that there's this interesting scene that occurs that has some swirling sort of more scorsese-esque shots you know sometimes this film feels a little alien from what we've come to know as a Scorsese mm. film with the sweeping motions and stuff. And this is one of those shots. It sort of uh, happens over... It's kind of cutting as a period in time, basically. We've seen just then um, Ernest and Molly get married and then we cut to them living in the house and we see mm. there's a lot of these kind of white yes-men around. They don't really have any characters or names, but mm. then we see his brother, Byron, sort of accosting... Um, Molly's sister, who's um, quite drunk, Anna. Um, And there's a really good sweeping motion with this because it moves throughout the scene and we see sort of all the people in. And it it gives us a very grim reality of sort of like the the euphoric or utopic vision that probably Molly hoped for with Mm. this joining of cultural has seceded pretty quickly. Um, And it's a good sequence that sort of leads to a really good bit of dialogue between Anna and and Lizzie Q, their mother, Mm. upstairs, and even the the little bit between Molly and and Lizzie Q about 
um, this sort of they've kind of broken into the the the, the defenses. The, right. the, we are completely exposed, and we're kind of doomed. Is sort of the the vernacular Fitting of that the they, She immediately dies after the scene. Yes, well, <laughs> and it's a great sequence that really sort of sets the tone of the film. I think, um, and we really just see how much of if if Ernest is bad, we see even worse his brother is. Mm. Yeah, well, his brother's straight up abusive. Yeah, in this moment, there's two things that 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 I'm reminded of when you mention this because we talked earlier about the coyotes and the snakes and the 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 representation of what an animal means to the Osage people. And I think this is the scene, or or leads into the scene, is when the mother first sees the owl mm. approach, and she tells her daughter, you know, when you see the owl, means you're about to die. And this didn't end up becoming true for Molly in the sense that she sees the owl and yet she is that close to the brink of death and yet she's still saved from it. Mm. I just thought it was an interesting ode to include that. But the other thing is you mentioned the lighting as well. And I saw a little interview piece with the, the film cinematographer who I think he mentioned something about the scenes where it's just the Osage people on screen and, and none of the white folk are around, that there's more like naturalistic lighting and that the scenes where it's just the white Americans involved, there's a lot like higher contrast. And mm. the idea it's highlighting like the drama aspect of like, oh, we're shooting a drama here as opposed to, I guess, the more documentarian style of the natural lighting with the Osage people. And I think there's a bit of a mixture he was saying when, when mm. they're together at these like wedding ceremonies, for example. There so, we go. I just thought it was an interesting too, but I wanted to sneak on in there. Killers of the Flower Moon is currently out in cinemas near you. Mm. Speaking of cinemas, Jack, what's new to cinemas and streaming platforms this week? There's not a whole lot coming out. we got uh, Pain Hustlers coming to Netflix, which sees Emily Blunt, desperate to raise her daughter, join a failing pharmaceutical setup, which I think is run by Chris Evans, uh, which turns into a dangerous racketeering scheme based around the real-life opioid epidemic. I'm hearing this is uh, not great. What was There's the, a lot going on there. What was the series, the Disney Plus series about the opioid epidemic? I can't remember what it's called now. Caitlin Devers in it, and um, yeah, I can't remember what it's called. But I think I think people are sort of pointing to that, being like, "You're good. You can watch that series. You don't need to watch this film." Excellent. Which is a shame because we, we love Chris Evans. Yeah, I like Emily Blunt. There you go. I, I like Emily Blunt too. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and coming to Prime this week, this is exciting, Hot Potato, the story of the Wiggles. Oh, this looks fun. Covers the life uh, of music, friendship, and joy with Australian band The Wiggles. This means a lot to us. Yeah. And I reckon we will do this very soon. I think so, too. I think it'll be quite fun. Friend of the show, Jesse Newell, he was in Sydney. He might still be in Sydney right now. Uh, I guess they got a film festival over there, and he he's seen this already. He attended oh, the premiere for Hot Potatoes. That's pretty cool. That's very cool. Good on him. Yeah. We're going to get him back on the show very soon. Yeah. Now, coming to cinemas. Uh, this shocked me. I was like, holy crap, this is already coming out. David Fincher's The Killer sees Michael Fassbender as a solitary, cold, and methodical killer who waits in the shadows. And the longer he waits for his next target, the more he thinks he's losing his mind. If not, he's cool. Bloody got a new Fincher film out already. Yeah, that's crazy. There you go. Now, it's, it's funny because from the reviews I've sort of glazed at, apparently this film is like very meta about his own career as a filmmaker. And I think the quote I read is that 
this feels like it was directed by a man who was so ashamed of the fact that he is known for having directed Fight Club. So I reckon there's like a very meta exploration of toxic masculinity in this film. And it's... And I've also heard it is a big apology for Mank, so that's also good. (laughs) Even though we didn't actually hate Mank that much. No, it was fine. Yeah, but I kind of meant... As soon as it got nominated for Oscars, I was like, huh? What's going on here? Okay, settle down. (laughs) (laughs) Also coming out this week, we've got Five Nights at Freddy's, based on the video game. It sees a troubled security guard on his first night at the Freddy Fazbear's Pizza. Oh my God. Uh, Realise the night shift may not be so easy. Have you ever played this game, Zeke? No, I haven't played uh, FNAF. FNAF. I'm not joking. (laughs) They literally abbreviate. I went... I said because I was talking to my kids the other day. I went, if there is a video game adaptation that shouldn't be crap, this right. has got to be in that conversation for not being terrible. It's a simple, easy mm. horror film, right? About animatronics coming to life and killing you. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. On paper, yeah, you're right. In, in all seriousness, I was dead shocked that the main character is not Nick Cage. Because, like, to me, it feels like a Nick Cage kind of, like, could work with mm. Nick Cage. But he's a bit old now. And he's yeah. in, and he's in and, WA right I now. I know, he's busy. He's in he, he's, he's down he's, south, so he's down south. <laughs> but, like, it should work, shouldn't it? Mm. It really, for a low-budget, attainable horror film, I don't really know what why they come to life, though. What's the secret? I, yeah, I've never played the games either. I don't quite... Yeah. I know people who probably would know the whole, like, lore behind. I know the whole thing's, like, on CCTV. Like, you have yes, to the, yeah, that's You have cool. to the panic room and lock them out. See, it's kind of clever. Um, As a game function, it's like, you're... That'll be a good VR experience. There probably is a, probably is a VR version of this. I, just, I couldn't think of anything. I just can't stand horror, but... Have you seen the clip of me playing Resident Evil 7 in VR? I think I might have. It's great. Okay. But, <laughs> I'm attacked in VR. Um, my scary lady. Yeah. I think um, if there's a film that should work, mm. it should be this. It probably won't. But I, I, in terms of video game adaptations, I feel like horrors are like the easiest ones to do. I guess so. But also horror is like the most common genre where films are just crap because yeah, they, like it, it's the easiest one to screw up, I guess, for some reason. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how they do it. Do they do it through the CCTV? Do they go the full video game immersion? From what I've seen the trailers, it looks pretty, like, generic. Like, I don't don't think there's any cool trickery they're using to shout out the games. It's just kind of like, I guess, like Gran Turismo. Even then, I'm sure there were POV shots in Gran Turismo. I can't remember. That felt like a millennium ago. But, yeah. Well, at least I'm not getting scared uh, by... You know, scary ladies in VR anymore because the next film is called Scary Girl. Spelt as a one word. Scary Girl. Scary Girl. It's an animated film about a young girl who must overcome her fears and travel to the mysterious city of light, save her father from a dangerous scientist, and prevent the destruction of her planet. Woo! Da 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 da. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Uh, The Last Night of a Moor, playing exclusively at Luna, sees an exemplary policeman on the verge of retirement called to a scene in which his best friend and long-time partner, I wrote parent, it's partner, has been killed during a diamond heist. I think this is like, uh, I guess, a Good Time-esque sort of downward spiral film. Oh. 
cop about to retire turns wicked at the end and maybe turns into John Wick. Who knows? Ah. I think it's French. I think it's a French film. Interesting. Very enticing. We shall see what the vibe is. Now, this is exciting. This is only coming to Palace. And keep in mind, this is a 30-minute short film. Okay. So it's not a feature. It's directed by Pedro Almodovar. It's called Strange Way of Life. And I've heard so much about this film over the last year. It's Pedro Pascal and Ethan Hawke as gay cowboys. Let's go. Gay? I think they're gay. Interesting. I think they're... Let's go. Easy. Rogue Mountain sequel. Excellent. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so that that's exciting. That's only coming to Palace for some reason. I guess because it's a short. It's a little awkward to promote. Yes. I yeah, I'm not too sure. And finally, Dumb Money, which I've mentioned many, many, many times, is finally going wide this week. It's had several like pre-screenings or early screenings, so you can finally just walk in and watch it. I guess from this... I guess Thursday. Oh, excellent. I guess it would be this Thursday. So I would love to catch that. I've been trying to find a, a time where I can go and Slot watch it. in. Uh, are they still screening past lives at the cinema? Uh, maybe. I hope so. Sporadically, I see occasionally. I'd love to go see it. It's probably like one of those films that you go to JB a week from now and it's already on DVD. Yeah, probably. And not Blu-ray because screw me. Yeah. <laughs> at <laughs> least they still stock them. You know, this that's day it. and age, this that's day and true. age, you never know. They're all going out the window. Uh, but that's everything coming to streaming and cinemas this week, Zeke. Excellent. Well, guess what, Jake? Believe it or not... We've done it. We're going into episode <laughs> 250. Wow. So we've got to do our 25th mm. director's corner. If yeah. I do the math correctly. No, 45th. What is it? 50th. It's the 50th. 50th. Yeah, I can't do math. Divided by five is 50. Our 50th director's corner, Zeke. That's wild. Oh, my God. I don't know why I thought we did them every 10 episodes. That was where my math was originally. And then I, it got worse. <laughs> so our 50th director, It just went Jake, downhill from there. Who is the director and what are we watching? We thought Zeke was about darn time. We finally watch a Charlie Chaplin film. We're going way back into an early era of cinema. Mm. And I think we're going to start with next week's Modern Times. Chaplin the Great returns in Modern Times, a truly great film. You are looking at scenes from that film classic, Charlie Chaplin's Modern Times. Back. Section 5, more speed. Charlie Chaplin. Who else but Charlie Chaplin can make us howl with laughter or move us to tears? When he's being shoved around or even getting tough or acting like a hero, above all, profoundly human. In modern times, the little man makes you laugh from the first scene to the last. With millions of moviegoers the world over, see and see again the film in which Charlie Chaplin sings for the first time. (laughs) 
Charlie Chaplin plays the tramp as he struggles to live in modern industrial society with the help of a young homeless woman. Now, Zeke. Yes. I've, this is the only Charlie Chaplin film I have seen, which might be a little, you know, why wouldn't we want to watch one that, that neither of us have seen? Mm. And um, I think for me, it's just this film is so, 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 so good for being nearly 100 years old and about sort of the new age industrial industry and I just I, I am shocked at how well this film holds up and I think it's sort of a perfect window through to the, the entirety of Charlie Chaplin's filmography excellent well look hey 250 episodes what a way to go out and do that <laughs> we're not done yet but no, you made, you made, sound, you made, it, sound, like, we you made it sound very violent 250 <laughs> and we're done we're out <laughs> No one thought we'd go this like, quarter of a millennium. Oh, my God. If you want to think mm, of it that true, way. That is very true. But until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Sideshow Podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. And we'll catch you next week with Charlie Chaplin's Modern Times.